right, for the last time in a worship service here, for a while anyway, First Peter. Today we wrap up First Peter. It's in part a little bit of a summary, but not completely. Verse 12. By Silvanius, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, in Christ there is indeed the fullness of grace and truth. This morning we need both grace and truth. Give us Christ, whom you sent, that we may indeed have this grace and truth from the Scriptures. Do this so that we can see your glory, that we might love and delight in you all the more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this year has really been a year in which many of you have experienced, and we as a congregation have experienced what I'll, what I'll call a series of shockwaves. Uh, we've had uh, Claire's accident and then, then Jim's death. We had uh, Jeanette being diagnosed with cancer and then her uh, death as well. Cancer has touched many of your families in addition uh, to this congregation. We've experienced departures as friends who have worshipped with us for years have moved away and we miss them. There have also been conflicts that some of you have experienced that have shaken your little part of the world and shaken your soul. Uh, there, all of us have experienced on some level, depending, doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you're on, it's not been great. There's been struggle, trial. These things can shake us. They can threaten to knock us off our feet. And that's what Peter is getting at here. Because the people that he wrote to experienced similar sorts of things that threatened to knock them off their feet spiritually. And so he wants them to be able to stand firm in the midst of these things. It's not easy. John Calvin notes how difficult it is to continue in the faith. Evidences of this are the daily defections of many. And so Calvin in Geneva, which we sometimes idealize as this perfect city of Christian people, experienced or saw the defections of many from the faith. And so we can see how difficult it is to remain or continue in the faith or stand firm in the grace of God. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus is the one who helps us to stand firm in faith in a faithless place. Jesus 
helps us stand firm in faith in a faithless place. And the first way in which Jesus helps us stand firm is that Christ has given us Scripture to learn of true grace. Peter is sort of wrapping up this whole letter, and he returns, in a sense, to the beginning of this letter. Because one of the things that he said is, grace to you from the Fa- God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's returning to this theme of grace which is run all the way through this particular letter. He's summarizing, in a sense, the purposes of writing this letter and reflects the greeting. He reminds them that I have written briefly to you. While I may not have preached briefly to you, he has written briefly to you. This is not a long letter. This is not like Hebrews or Romans. This is a much shorter letter. But what we want to recognize right here is that Peter thought that his writing of the letter was important to their spiritual health. Okay, He didn't write this just to say hi, we usually write letters to say hi to people. We don't really write letters anymore. Uh, we just send emails. But, you know, the Christmas letter that we often get and hang on our, on our refrigerator or something, it's usually, this is what's been going on in my life, and that is nothing like what Peter writes here. He writes a letter that's not about Peter, but it's about Jesus, and it's so that they can stand firm in the faith. He writes this briefly for their spiritual well-being, for their spiritual health. And earlier in this letter, he talked about the Holy Spirit at work within the prophets so that they made these promises about the coming sufferings of Jesus Christ. And it's that very same Holy Spirit who was at work in Peter as he wrote this letter to this group of people. But let's not stop there. It is that same Holy Spirit that is at work when you, today, read this letter for your spiritual benefit. The Holy Spirit uses the epistles, not just of Peter, but all of the the scriptures for your spiritual well-being. That's important for us to remember. So often when we're in trouble, the scriptures are the last place we look instead of the first place we look. The spiritual help we need is found in the scriptures. And that's why Peter thought it was so important to write to them. The Scriptures are important to us because they speak of the grace of God for us. And that's what Peter mentioned when he talked about the sufferings of Christ. It's about the grace that God was going to bring to the church, to God's people. And so the Old Testament is the promises of grace, but the New Testament talks about the realities of grace fulfilled in the ministry and the work of Jesus, the Messiah. Explains what all of it meant that we might have grace. 
And so Peter says that he wrote this in part declaring this, or testifying might be a better way of, of putting that word. Declaring this or testifying this is the true grace of God. He wrote to testify that there is a true, authentic, real grace of God precisely because there were many counterfeits claiming to be the grace of God. You see, faithless places are often full of counterfeit gospels. Counterfeit gospels that can unsettle us, that can unseat us, that can knock us off our feet. That we lose our spiritual bearings and are lost in a haze. And so that's one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter, so that they would understand the true grace of God and be able to separate it from the false graces that are offered. You've probably heard this many times, and one more time will be okay, I think. But when uh, treasury agents are taught about counterfeiting, they study the real thing so that they can then identify the counterfeit because it deviates from the real thing. It deviates from the patterns that are established in real money. And so your goal is not to learn all about the cults. Your goal should be to know all about the Scriptures so that you understand the real grace and so that when you hear some fuzzy teaching, your spiritual antenna goes up and you go, hey, wait a minute. That departs from what the Scriptures say in these particular ways. And so you don't have to be an expert on false teaching. You need to be an expert on the Scriptures and what they correctly teach. I'm going to violate that for a moment. <laughs> I'm going to talk about some counterfeit meanings. There are counterfeit meanings of grace that exist. For instance, the Mormons treat grace in my conversations with them at my door. Uh, grace as something that is sort of tacked on at the end. That you are to be an obedient person um, for... Mm -hmm. If grace is how I understand grace, there's no reason for obedience in their minds. And so you're to be a good person, and grace kind of comes in and fills the gaps, those little missteps that you may have made. It, it reminds me a little bit of one, of one of my friends in New Hampshire said about ice cream. There's always room for ice cream because it fills the gaps. True grace is not like ice cream. <laughs> it's not just to fill the gaps, but rather, as Sinclair Ferguson notes, the Christian life begins, develops, and ends with grace. We never cease to need it. It is never superfluous. It doesn't just fill the gaps. Our salvation is all of grace and none of you. Okay. So there are counterfeit understandings of grace. There are also counterfeit means of grace. When we say that grace is received 
by the sacrament apart from faith when we say that it is received by rituals instead of faith in Jesus Christ. Those are counterfeit means of grace. What does this letter in particular teach about grace? If we can remember all that Peter has said to us, which is hard over the last eight months, we would see... Well, first let me define how I understand grace. I'm going to add on to the common acronym that is used. God's riches at Christ's expense. And I'll add on, received in union with Christ by faith. And so it's the idea that you have not earned this stuff. It is freely given to you by God's mercy and kindness because Christ has earned it. Christ has suffered for it. So that's the idea of Christ's expense. But it is received not by everybody in general, but it is received by those who are united to Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners. And so when thinking about this idea of grace, right from the beginning of this letter, we see the grace of election in Christ. That that Peter is saying something similar to, or identical to, what Paul says in other places like Ephesians 1, your salvation is grounded upon the work of Christ, but it's also grounded upon the election of God for you, Him choosing you in Christ. Grace starts there. Grace continues in this idea of being born again or regenerated. Grace continues in this letter with the notion of justification, that Christ has borne our sins and that Christ was obedient on our behalf. It continues with the notion that we have been adopted and now are sons of God in Christ Jesus. It continues through this call to sanctification, to live out our brand new identity in Jesus Christ by being a people devoted to God in how we live, in what we do. And of course, Peter speaks much as well about our ultimate glorification in Jesus Christ, the reward that comes at the end. And so, right back to Ferguson, all of it is grace upon grace, upon grace. None of this have we earned. All of it is freely given to us. That is the grace, the true grace of God that Peter wanted his audience to know and that I want you to know. Not just intellectually, but experientially because you have trusted in Jesus the Messiah. He says, stand firm in it. Now it's interesting because it's not a typical imperative there. I don't like bringing grammar into the pulpit a whole lot, but this is one of those places where I will. That's the second week in a row I think I've said that, and I'm sorry. This is not in the imperative form, but subjunctive. The idea that I wrote this so that you may stand firm in His grace. And so it has a much softer sort of feel to it. It has, um, it's much more connected to the means. 
He wrote so that we may stand firm in the grace of God. That was His purpose. Our steadfastness. Our ability to uh, not be knocked over. And, you know, Brian and Kendra are not here this morning. They're recovering from their cruise. And one of the things that you recover from when you've been on a cruise, you've been on a boat, getting used to being on dry land again. Okay? I, I don't, haven't really had that experience, so I don't know. The boat un, unsettles your equilibrium. You have to recalibrate to life on land. Grace recalibrates us to life in God's presence, to life in God's world, so that we are able to stand as opposed to fall in shame and guilt. And so he declared it so that they could stand despite the opposition that they experience. It's not the waves that are the problem. It is the opposition they experience, as we've seen, from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. There is opposition to this life of devotedness to God that they experience, and he wants them to stand firm. Football has resumed. One of the positions in football, offensive linemen, it's very important to, as an offensive lineman to stay on your feet because there's this rather large human being who's trying to get through you to hurt someone else. And your job is to protect that quarterback, to make a hole for that running back, depending on the play. But this, you are facing a large person who's trying to move you off your feet. And so you have to be large too. That's not my point. But you learn techniques. You learn how to stay on your feet from your coaches. How to work together with the other linemen to achieve the ultimate purpose for that particular play. And essentially, this letter is like a coach trying to teach these people how to stay on their feet and work together when the world, the flesh, and the devil are coming at them. Without the grace of God, it's not going to happen. You'll be knocked on your back and trampled into the dust. And so we are to study the Scriptures to know the grace that Jesus supplies by faith at all times. So, firstly, Christ gives us Scripture to learn of true grace. Secondly, Christ gives us His people to stand firm with us. Sticking with that idea of the offensive line. It's not one guy who's responsible for all those uh, defenders. It is a group of men. Jesus gives us people, His people, to stand firm with us. So the same Jesus who gives us the Scriptures is the Jesus who gives us other faithful people in the midst of a very faithless sort of place. And the first person He mentions is Silas. Okay, now he goes without saying that, that God gave them Peter. Okay, but he also gave them Silas, whom he declares or reckons to be, or his experience and uh, assessment of this man is that Silas is a faithful brother. 
he commends to them the man who most likely was carrying this letter to them from Rome to Asia Minor. They didn't know Silas. So they don't know what sort of fellow he is. And so Peter makes sure that he says, faithful brother. He too has been adopted by God. He too has proven himself faithful over the long haul. And this man is coming to you in my stead, bearing this letter. Who is Silas or Silvanius? That's different variants, same guy. It's okay, don't get thrown off by the different spelling. They often went by um, people like Silas, like Paul, went by a Hebrew name and a Greek name. Okay. Paul didn't change his name. He he wasn't Saul one day and Paul the next day, but that was how he was understood within the Gentile community. Paul. So, Silas is one of these people, and we see Silas, first of all, in Acts chapter 15. This is why we read Acts chapter 15. He was one of the two men that was given the letter from the council to the Gentile Christians, or the mixed community churches, rather, the multi-ethnic churches of the New Testament, so that they would understand, so the Jewish Christians would understand what they should and should not expect from Gentile Christians. And so uh, Silas was one of these two men. And we see that Silas and this other man, because they're prophets, they also encouraged the brothers. They went beyond the letter and spent time encouraging and teaching the the Christians of Antioch. Now remember, these are Christians who already had Paul and Barnabas. And yet God brings along this guy, Silas, who also encourages them alongside And so when Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement about John Mark, a.k.a. Mark, Paul decides, that's a dude I can work with. And so he takes Silas with him on his next missionary journey. And we see the faithfulness of this man in that in Acts 16, he is with Paul in prison in Philippi. And they're singing hymns to God. They are not dismayed by this opposition they have experienced We see that Silas also co-wrote letters with Paul to the Thessalonians. Somehow, probably with his time with Paul, he ends up in Rome and reconnects with Peter, whom he knew when he was in Jerusalem. And so Peter has known this man for 20 to 30 years. Silas is not a fly-by-night kind of guy, but he was well-known to the leaders of the church. And Peter commends Silas to these people because he's not just a letter carrier. He is someone who is qualified to also teach and encourage them. Peter sends them a man who's going to exercise his gifts beyond this letter so that they are able to stand firm in the true grace of God. That's not it, though. That's not all, rather. There's more. And I found like it sounded like an infomercial or something. There's the church. 
the one who is in Babylon. And now let's not get confused. There was almost no one in Babylon in those days. The, the city that we know as Babylon was pretty much almost deserted by this time in history. It's not the garrison in Egypt that was called Babylon. This is a metaf- the metaphorical use of Babylon referring to a great world power that was filled with much corruption and uh, spiritual bondage. In other words, Rome. <laughs> Steve and I are on the same page. That's a good thing. <laughs> okay, Peter is writing from Rome, and the church in Rome is sending their greetings. What's important to note is that she, like the church here in Asia Minor, has been chosen by God and has experienced the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And they go, hey. But it's more than just, hey. I'm sure it's, we're praying for you. Because they were. So, they sent greetings. They sense this connection. Okay? But there's more. Because there's Mark, my son. John Mark. The author of that second gospel guy. He's, Peter is one of those who invested and poured his life into Mark. And so we see again, I think here, uh, another glimpse of the multi-generational character of the church and the multi-generational character of its leadership. Because Peter and Silas were older than Mark. He was a young man, probably a teenager, when the events took place in Jerusalem. His mother was Mary of Bethany. Okay? And so he, his mother was a disciple of Jesus and he had heard much of what Jesus said. He was there on the night in which Jesus was betrayed by Judas. We see that at some point he ends up in Antioch, probably during the persecution that broke out early in the life of the church. And he is the one who joined Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And unfortunately he is the one who also bailed on the first missionary journey. He's the one that Paul and Barnabas argued over and that Barnabas ended up taking under his wing. He's the one that Barnabas rehabilitated, so to speak. He he, he failed. He was a failure. But God didn't give up on Mark. And Barnabas didn't give up on Mark. And so Mark became a man by the grace of God through whom Scripture was written, a man who, about whom Paul himself would later say in 2 Timothy, bring Mark with me, he's useful for me. You may have failed. That doesn't mean God's done with you. Whether you sinned grievously or whether you have just failed in a task. You're not fired as a Christian. But God continues to invest in you through other people so that you can become a faithful brother just like Mark, his son. Catch the warmth that's there. My son. 
So the church in Rome and Mark likely were praying for them, and that's the motive for them sending greetings. They cared about the well-being of the of these Christians and these churches in Asia Minor. And then Jesus also gives us each other. See, there's this greeting that comes from outside of the church, but then he says, greet one another with the kiss of love. Kisses in that culture were often about familial affection. We tend to think of it romantically. For them, there was the familial affection. Brothers and sisters would kiss each other on the cheek. Parents would kiss their children, obviously. Uh, extended family, you'd see each other, ah, big hug and a kiss on the cheek, that kind of thing. Some of my children are not so wild about the fact that I want to kiss them goodnight still, but it's going to happen anyway. <laughs> because I want my children to know the affection of a father, not just the discipline of a father. Balance in their experience of me. And so he says to them, greet each other with this, with this kiss of love. There should be familial affection taking place within the body of Christ. And I'm not going to use that as a justification to kiss all the women. That's not what I'm saying right here. But there should be warm expressions of love that take place. Hugs, even if it's the side hug. Uh, a hand upon the shoulder, like I do with the kids uh, that aren't my kids. A little tussle of the hair. You know, Levi gets those sometimes when he's running around. They're committed to communicate love and affection within the family of God. And therefore, they are wholly appropriate as long as they're holy. Okay? Um, Wayne Gruden notes that these warm expressions of love often hinder conflict. In other words, it's, it's kind of hard to stab someone in the back when you're giving them a hug high on Sunday mornings. When we were in Florida, there was a, a time of uh, stressful conflict within our church. And I praise God for Nancy. Nancy had Down syndrome. But Nancy was quite perceptive. Nancy somehow knew who was in conflict with whom. And she could do what I couldn't do. Because who could say no to Nancy? And she would literally say, you too, hug. <laughs> Begins the process of taking down the conflict and the hostility. We're forced to face each other and remember that we're brothers and sisters. And though you might disagree on a particular thing, it's not everything. It's just something. And so Jesus gave that church, Peter and Silas and Mark and the church of Rome and one another. And he has given us people as well too. People like Stu keeps coming back. 
I'm glad for that. So Jesus gives us all kinds of people to help us to stand firm in true grace. Thirdly, Christ gives us peace to stand firm. Peter not, didn't just say peace to you, uh, sorry, grace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, but he said grace and peace to you. He's already spoken here at the end about the true grace of God, and now he brings the peace back into the symmetry of this letter. He may have been a fisherman, but he wasn't dumb. Right? Goes back to this. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. He wants them to experience the shalom of God even though their circumstances are sketchy at best and tumultuous at worst. In other words, brothers and sisters, their circumstances produced a need for peace. And there's some of you who have very tumultuous circumstances and you need peace. You need the shalom of God to come and guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You need peace in order to face the changes that are going on in your world. You need peace to, to, to face the loss that is going on in your world. True peace is not dependent on circumstances. It's not about God changing your circumstances, but true shalom and peace is dependent upon Christ Himself. Think of that battle that we read about from Second Chronicles 20. Uh, Jehoshaphat is trying to lead the army of, of uh, Judah against this larger force. And he's told... The battle belongs to the Lord. So what do they do? They have a worship service. They sing, they praise, fear not, be not dismayed. There's an army out there, but don't worry, our God's got it. And they didn't even fight the battle. God fought the battle for them. And there's a sense in which we have to remember God has this. We are not out here alone. Be not dismayed. Fear not, for I am with you. And experience the shalom that transcends understanding that we see in Philippians 4. You see, faithless places can upset us. It's not just our circumstances, but also living in a faithless place can upset us because the society we live in pursues sin and pursues injustice. Think for a moment, Second Peter chapter 2, he's talking about the rescue of righteous Lot. And if you asked me uh, if Lot was a righteous man based on what happens in Genesis, I would go to you, are you crazy? But the scriptures declare he's righteous Lot. And they're right, and I'm not. So righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked... For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was, tor- he was tormented, 
tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And so Lot was incredibly distressed by the sin he saw outside his window. And we live in a society and a culture that there is much sin outside of our window. And I usually don't, don't focus on the sin outside our window, but that should distress us. It should vex us, disturb us. I spoke with a pastor while we were going to the ball game on Thursday, and he has guys who do business in Nogales, and he worries about them because he's been to Nogales. I haven't. Some of them get into trouble in Nogales. They participate in the sin of that city. Instead of being tormented by it or disturbed by it, they participate in it. But it's not just sin, it's also injustice that can throw us off. And the events that are taking place this weekend in St. Louis are disturbing. They're disturbing because of why they're happening, because of the injustice that often does take place within our legal system, that that guilty people are sometimes found innocent, and that innocent people are sometimes found guilty. That should distress us. It's also distressing to watch protests, which are legitimate, get turned into free-for-alls by some wicked people. There should be peaceful protests when there is injustice. That is a good thing. That is a right thing. But it's wrong to destroy a city, as sometimes happens. And so this affects us. And it's into that kind of thing that Peter says that this peace is for those who are in Christ, or rather those who are united to Jesus Christ. It's not something that is automatic, even if we are in Christ. Because this peace is, while it's connected to our union with Christ, it is also connected to our communion with Christ, or fellowship with Him. We see that... In Isaiah 26, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And so while we're united to Christ, we also need to commune with Christ by faith, trusting in him to receive that peace. Likewise, in Philippians chapter 4, Paul talks about how don't be anxious, but make everything known in prayer and supplication and As you do that, the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so as we experience communion or fellowship with Christ by faith, as we pray, as we trust, we receive that peace that Paul, Peter rather, is talking about here, that Paul has also written about. It would be great if those guys didn't talk about the same thing sometimes. I maybe keep them straight in my brain. But praise God, the consistency of Scripture. They do say the same things. That, that should be an argument for the inspiration of the Scriptures. Uh, that Peter and Paul do not disagree. 
This is important for us to keep in mind. So peace is not for the spiritual elite, but rather it's for the humble, the people who humble themselves before God, who are submitting to God in the midst of trial. That's, that's who the peace is for. And so this letter was written by Peter the Apostle to Christians who are living in a faithless place, who are experiencing incredibly challenging circumstances. And he wrote this letter to them so that they would be able to stand firm in the true grace of God. That This letter bears witness to the true grace and continually pleads or exhorts them to to make use of that grace, to experience that grace because they have Jesus, not just the grace. No Jesus, no grace. But we look for Jesus, not simply the grace. This grace of Christ comes from the Scriptures and God's people so that we experience peace through our union with Christ even as our friends pass away even as our friends move away, even as loved ones get sick, have surgery, lose jobs, endure conflict, and I could go on and on. In his commentary on this letter, Paul Gardner concludes with the question that I will conclude with. Are we a people who are truly dependent on the God of all grace? Or are we still deeply fearful? This letter commends to you the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, I confess that that uh, sometimes I'm one of those people dependent on you and sometimes I'm one of those people who's fearful. And I think all of us could say the same thing. Continue to work by your scriptures and by your spirit together to make us people who are truly dependent upon you more consistently. Who, when we find ourselves deeply fearful, are people who are turning to you more and more quickly in humble reliance upon Jesus, the fountain of grace. Help us to seek Jesus and not simply grace from Jesus. Father, help us to stand firm in the true grace here in Tucson. Whether it's Raytheon or the school system in Suarito, whether it's Push Ridge, whether it's our own home. Help us to stand firm in the midst of the challenges that we experience, the sin that vexes our soul, whether it's someone else's or our own, the injustice that we see the injustice that we perpetrate.
Help us to rest in Christ that we might have this peace that we so desperately need and that in many ways the world needs to see that we have so that they will become thirsty and long for Him. Thank You for this letter. Thank You for the time that we spent looking at this letter. Prepare us now even as we begin to look at Jonah. To see you as the the God of all grace as well as the God who chases after sinners. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.